I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome back, everyone, to the Playing Footsie podcast, your weekly UK roundup of all the playing footsie news and <laughs> this week it's all about earnings <laughs> earnings reports uh, we, we have so many earnings reports that, uh, of exciting companies that we're all interested in uh, and we just want to talk about them because some of them we feel might be uh, a bit miscalculated at the moment some of them are having a really good time so there's there's lots of things we want to talk about today so we're gonna skip all the games no games this week sorry guys to anybody who actually likes those things i think it's only us that really likes the games but you guys this week uh the two steves how you been this week and how's the stock market going for you because i'm just watching my trading to a two account right now and this is is this tuesday or is it wednesday we're recording this wednesday 4th of may we're recording this uh the fed has just raised uh, announced it's going to raise rates to uh 0.5 uh, by 0.5 percent and uh the market's gone a bit wild so how has your week been <laughs> uh so my week's not been amazing this week i've been a bit under the weather i would say how but i don't think the youtube algo likes it when i say things about that so i won't i'll just say i've been uh, yeah a bit unwell this time it's been a uh, a tough kind of weekend, actually. I spent most of it in bed uh, to the point that I was so unwell that I actually fell asleep, I think, about three times in the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting. And that might sound like uh, no big deal, listening to some white guys talking for about six hours or so and falling asleep three times. But look, I work in academia. This is basically what I do for like 30% of my job or something, trying to stay awake while older people than me who are mainly white and mainly rich talk. So for me to drop off in the middle of that is quite a big deal. So yeah, uh, not tremendously well uh, this week. I'm looking at my portfolio as well. I think it's probably doing a similar thing to yours and every portfolio in the world at the moment, unless it's some sort of weird inverted thing. Um, But that's more or less me. How are you, Steve? Uh, I'm doing all right, just so you know. Uh, the FTSE 100 is still down 1%, so, uh, <laughs> so it's doing FTSE things. Uh, my portfolio is up. Uh, just looking at it live now, uh, we've still got um, at least half an hour left of the day, but I'm up 1.8% on my main portfolio and over 4% on the money incinerator, so that is doing exactly what it's uh, not intended to do. Um, so yeah, uh, really good, really happy with the markets. Uh, I don't think we're going to do too much on the Fed raising rates because this is Wednesday and by the time it'll be Sunday, if you don't know the Fed have raised rates, I have no idea what you've been doing and I don't want to know. <laughs> but um, yeah, all looks positive to me. I think the fears of a, a, a higher rates have now subsided and I think um, let's just keep going. I hope this, I hope this run continues. Yeah, on this news, um, I've literally... Uh, my portfolio has just gone up by a grand just in the past half an hour, which is absolutely ridiculous. And this is all based on something we already knew, I guess. And that was that was kind of it. it I feel like these these rate heights, we, we kind of knew it was going to be five, 0.5%. And then when it came out, it was 0.5%. The market's gone a bit wild. And it, it just goes to show how weird and strange the market is right now and how 
efficient it is, obviously. Um, yeah, moving on from that one. Um, you mentioned Buffett, and I totally forgot to uh, talk about Buffett or even mention it to you guys this week. Uh, anything fun? Did you? Uh, I watched quite a bit of it, or as much as it of it as I could. Uh, anything fun you w- want to take away from uh, Buffett and Munger over the weekend? Uh, I'll let you know when I stay awake for long enough to find out. Uh, but one thing I did <laughs> see kind of happening in the aftermath of that was uh, I saw Charlie Munger had taken yet another uh, swipe at um, Robin Hood, and it looked to me like he might have kind of managed to connect with a bit of a nerve um, there because they decided to to fire back on CNBC. Uh, not mm. sure that was... I don't know. Maybe that was a wise idea. Maybe it wasn't. I mean, he accused them of the standard things that everyone has been accusing them of since their existence, basically, which is more or less getting... Uh, charging for order flow, effectively... Clients are not the customers, as it were. Their customers are the institutional investors. And that's the way it is. They kind of hide that a little bit in exchange for um, commission-free trading, uh, as I understand it. Then they wanted to say, uh, they said a whole bunch of things where I feel like if I were them, I'd rather have ignored uh, Charlie Munger here. He's significantly (laughs) richer than they are. Um, He's significantly more successful than they are. And a lot of people just think he's really old and doesn't get it anyway. Um, and so just just leave them in that thought, right? I mean, no one I think is now hit at this stage hearing the gospel according to Munger and thinking, gah, Robin Hood, turns out, uh, and so on. I mean, anyone who kind of was going to think that has already thought that a long time ago. Uh, so I wonder quite what they were sort of looking for in that. They made a nice pitch for their educational tools, though, which uh, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit wary of those, I think. Yeah, one of the things that they came back with was... Uh, just a complete lie really and they said uh, we don't allow people to short the market uh and obviously they don't they can't in the same way that we would short the market over here with cfds but they can they can buy puts on on stocks which is essentially just uh shorting the market so it, it was all a technicality they came back with and and it really did i think they just showed their ass robin hood did on that one but with with munger I think it is a bit of a double-edged sword being this like kind of older guy who hates everything because yeah, I think he's fully right about Robin Hood. Um, you know how how it's all been gamified and how it could be bad for the bad for the world. But I don't agree technically with him on crypto. You know, uh, he said that both him and Buffett said that crypto was useless, Bitcoin was terrible, and you shouldn't have it in your 401k. That's um, the equivalent of a pension over here in in the uh, UK. Is he right? Is is Bitcoin right? Should should other um, pension funds over here start to open up to crypto and Bitcoin and allow you to buy it in your in your 401k equivalents here in the uk i guess in my case i probably wouldn't have it in my pension uh crypto but that's not because uh, you don't have to go the whole buffett way uh of thinking look it's basically not money it will never be money it's a non-productive asset it's like tulips or whatever else uh to think that i mean you could well it's perfectly clear-headed i think to think look there's perfectly good things to invest in but when you're playing for your pension which is quite a serious kind of part of your Uh, future in a certain way just stick to the damn etfs and diversify the things as much as you can that's kind of your i guess uh, buying in fee uh, before you get to do the kind of fun investing right get some of your money into that um, etf tracking stuff 
and and then you can start wondering about anything basically you can start wondering about apple you can start wondering about legal in general you can start wondering about bitcoin you can start wondering about gold or whatever else you like uh basically i mean you don't have to go the whole kind of buffett route on that uh to think you wouldn't want it in your pension. I mean, I don't think I go the whole Buffett route on that. I think there's clearly stuff on that that I don't know. And at that point, he does kind of sound to me like uh, like a kind of grandparent who reminds me a bit of my grandmother who basically was distrusting of the machines in the bank uh, and constantly wanted to be seen by a, a person and so on and was like, well, I want someone to cash my cheque. And that's fine. That's kind of what she understands in a certain way. Uh, and Buffett's entitled to stick to what he understands, but it feels like on Bitcoin he is in danger of making pronouncements on something he doesn't. Mm, that's very interesting. I mean, I, know, I didn't want to bring up Elon Musk, but I uh, saw an interview with him the other day where he said, where he talked about longevity and said he didn't think that longevity was uh, uh, something we should really bring to the human race because we're unlikely as a human race to evolve if we. Uh, try to solve longevity as a problem you know live till stupid um stupid ages or or you know become immortal or whatever and uh, he says that because most people with the old ideas just kind of die and that's how we have the refresh of the new ideas and maybe that is something that <laughs> we should say about charlie munger maybe you should just die and we'll come back bitcoin finally <laughs> All right, let's move on. There's some funny faces there. Jesus. Let's move on to... <laughs> let's move on to uh, uh, earnings reports because there's some of the favourites um, which have come out. Uh, Teladoc, Amazon, Meta and Airbnb we've got on the list today uh, to talk about because these are all some crazy stocks with some crazy volatility right now. Uh based on some crazy, crazy uh, earnings reports. Let's start with Teladoc because I'm sure Steve D's been quiet there for a while now and uh, he's got a lot to say. Yeah, so Teladoc is one of my uh, sort of stocks I, I've really liked for quite a while. And um, I, I joined Kathy in this one as having a... Uh, well, I did have a rather large amount of money in it. It has disapparated to not being quite so much money. Um, but yeah, I was looking through their reports and um, there were some, definitely some headline items and uh, realistically, here's what I pulled from the report, here's what I think. I think it's important that we, we, we keep up talking about it because this is something we've talked about uh, on the podcast a number of times and I think if we if we hid away from what was a semi-dodgy earnings report, um, you know, that, that, that wouldn't be good. But here, here's what I found out. So 25% revenue growth was a headline item, up to 564.4 million on the quarter. Um, the full year guidance, they revised it down to 2.4 to 2.5 billion uh, in revenue and about 240 to 265 million of adjusted EBITDA. I mean, we hate that figure. I think everybody hates that figure. But that's the figure they're giving you uh, to earmark their profitability. So at the moment, that's what we're going to have to use. But the headline, the real headline, the standout, was a net loss of $6.6 billion or $41.11 per share, which is quite incredible because um, Teladoc share price at the time was only about $60. So uh, to lose two-thirds of it, quite an achievement. So uh, you can guess what happened. The share price fell 45% the next day. Um, 
which uh, yeah, if that was real, that would be that would be so justified. But let's not lie to each other. Teladoc doesn't have six point six billion in cash. Uh, it would have been fully wound up by now. Um, so I guess the question is, how can Teladoc lose six point six billion uh, in? Uh, how can it lose that much? It's nearly it's nearly its full market cap. We've made the joke probably that a stock has more goodwill than a Teladoc balance sheet. Um, so basically what <laughs> happened in this occasion is Teladoc chose to realise some of that goodwill uh, and take the loss. So I guess it's key that we probably just quickly explain what goodwill is. So when you buy um, an, a company, you take the value of all the tangible assets, so tangible meaning things you can actually touch, uh, you add them together and you get a figure there that the company is physically worth. However, like... The things that you can't touch, things like the brand name or the characters, if it's a show, if it has any proprietary technology, or things like how well it's regarded by its employees, th these are worth something, even if they're not physically available for you to, to sell and realise. Um, so on this occasion, TDOC's Goodwill Hall and its balance sheet is just an admission that it grossly overpaid for Livongo. It's an 18 billion uh, merger at the tippy top of its share price. So companies are required to review the value of goodwill on the balance sheets uh, at least once a year and then they can record any impairments. So if a share price is staying fairly stable, they don't really have to do anything, uh, any realisation of the goodwill. They can leave it there. But if the share price is falling at some point, they have to realise the loss. So uh, goodwill is different from other intangible assets in that it has an indefinite life. So whilst uh, most other intangible efforts have a sort of finite useful life, um, Goodwill, Goodwill does not, so. Um, it's worth noting that this was listed uh, as a risk in their report, so. I would imagine most people would scare over this because it's not really that important. So let's be clear, it's a non-cash charge. So this is destruction of shareholder capital, but it's not actually a debt or a bill that they have to pay. This essentially has been paid as part of the merger. Um, we, we had to know this was coming, uh, and it was becoming more and more inevitable as this as this price came down. And the bad news is they've still got over 7 billion more that they need to write off at some point. Um, so look, we can argue about whether buying Livongo was like a necessary evil um, and that they had to take the company out because somebody else would and they obviously realised that they had some synergy there. Um, but Teladoc has a really decent record with m and I mean, if we look at them buying BetterHelp, they paid $4 million for better help, and at the moment that's turning over $700 million in revenue. So that's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good acquisition. We'd be happy with that. So taking in what we've just learned, I, it doesn't seem so bad. And I tried to understand why the stock fell so much, and I think I found it. And I think it's because the CEO, Jason Gorovich, just lied. And uh, here's a quote I grabbed from uh, a healthcare presentation that was two weeks prior to the quarter closing, and I'm quoting him directly here. Having other virtual mental health vendors out there not performing at our level casts a negative shadow. To be honest, we simply outperform in this market. We are seeing all better health metrics make a tremendous amount of progress. So further to this, uh, Gorovich and Mala Murphy, who's the CFO, both assured investors in February Q4 2021 earnings that BetterHelp, this is the direct-to-consumer mental health branch of Teladoc, was doing just fine. Analysts were quite worried about competitive challenges cited by BetterHelp's competition, but leadership said these obstacles were not impacting Teladoc in the least. It was seemingly and supposedly immune. 
Leadership told us that its churn and customer acquisition costs were both falling while the lifetime value, LTV, rose despite its competition suffering the opposite. It also told us that BetterHelp's revenue would actually be margin accretive. Uh, yet seven days later, BetterHelp is facing competitive pressures from firms funded by VC, competing for its keywords, and it adjusted EBITDA margin, uh, its adjusted EBITDA margin has contracted by 430 basis points. So I guess that's where the fall comes. Um, looking into the stats, you're seeing basically a CEO covering up for uh, a part of the business that at the moment is not doing as well as it should be. Um, seven days later, unfortunately, the truth has unveiled itself. So. I guess, what am I doing? Well, I'm sitting on my ass like I always do. So I was really disappointed with this update. But feel free to call me a sucker. I think the thesis for Teladoc is still in play. I think my thesis is infinitely weaker than it was. But I still don't see a better play on this sort of holistic virtual care sector. And I still see the US trending towards that. So my biggest issue is TDoc now it really is a blip in someone else's balance sheet. Uh, it's valued at about $6 billion. I mean, you're thinking Johnson & Johnson are just about to split into two or three firms. God, I reckon one of them could just swallow up TDOC and, you know, taking it out on the cheap would be would be the real risk now, I think. So that's really what I pulled out of Teladoc. If you're wondering why it's gone down 40%, I would say that's why. Uh, so I had a couple of thoughts um, here, both connected to the sort of things that you saw on the uh, earnings. There were two things that sort of stuck out to me then. One is that socking great loss, uh, which records a big negative number in the EPS column. That's not good. The question is how not good. And the other is guidance contracting back in. Uh, that's also not good. And the question is how not good. And I think my answers to those two questions when I think about this are, I really don't mind about that goodwill write down. I looked at Teladoc's balance sheet and I saw, and as you know, it had a lot of goodwill. We don't really count that. Anyone who looked at that and saw it was trading at a price to book of under one must have thought there's something wrong with this valuation anyway. The reason being most of that book value is goodwill. So that was never really a concern for me. The issue with Teladoc, I think the bigger issue is this earnings guidance thing and the direction that things are traveling in. So here's how I think about earnings calls for what it's worth. If I'm buying a stock sort of today uh, and I'm going to keep it for 30 years, that's basically 120 lots of quarterly earnings. And as far as I can see, you can fit stocks into one of three broad categories. Um, there's your Kellogg's type stocks who say, here's the amount we're going to make. We're going to basically make this every quarter and it will go up a little bit. And at the end of 120 quarters, you can add them all up and that's how much you've made. Uh, and then there's the kind of Lennar type stocks that say we're going to make loads when the economy does really well and nearly nothing when the economy does badly and then loads again afterwards and you add up all those numbers and by the end of getting to 30 we'll have had enough big numbers so we'll make loads of money. And then you have your kind of Palantirs. By the way, I'm picking three stocks that have similar size market caps here. And Palantir type stocks say, look, we're going to make nothing for like the first, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 quarters. Uh, but in the remaining 100 or so, we're going to make so much money that we're going to blaze past Kellogg Man and Lennar Man and so on. Um, and Teladoc, as far as I can tell, is fairly obviously a Palantir type stock. So if you're wondering whether the EPS number is slightly higher or slightly lower, or even quite a lot lower because of goodwill and stuff, this quarter, I, I find that a strange way to think about this stock. In this case, what I care about is what's going to happen to those ones in like quarters, I don't know, 60 through to 120 uh, or something like that, or maybe 40 through to 120. Am I going to get those big numbers coming later? Because that's what's going to matter to me as a Teladoc person. That's how I'm going to make my money. Uh, for the time being, this company is going to make nothing as far as I can see in earnings per share. And I'm going to be okay with that. 
because over the course of 30 years, I'm going to have some big quarters that's going to do at least as well as, say, steady moving Kellogg or jumpy kind of Lennar or something like that. And that guidance thing is the thing I'd be really keeping my eye on here, because what tells me about the future is the story here. If I think things are slowing down, or those profitable quarters are getting further into the future, or they're not going to be as big as I thought they were, now I'm starting to worry. Uh, if there's a low EPS number for a non-cash charge in this quarter for a company like Teladoc, I don't think that's a big issue. Um, one final thing on that, where it is a big issue, I mean, it's not a cash issue. It is a management issue, as you pointed out. It's effectively an admission that an acquisition has not gone the way it was supposed to go. Uh, and you can say that's management's fault. You can say that's a market issue. For whatever reason, it's not gone right. And if you think that doesn't happen to good companies, uh, for what it's worth, I would advise anyone to have a look at the Kraft Heinz earnings for 2018. They're negative. Uh, and the reason that Kraft Heinz, which is basically a Kellogg-type company with a different name, has negative earnings is because that was the year that Heinz merged with Kraft, massively overpaid for Kraft, took a massive impairment charge, uh, and recorded negative EPS for a year. Did that company fail to sell anything in 2018? Of course it didn't. Uh, did it record negative earnings? Absolutely, for pretty much exactly this reason. So it's not a good thing uh, for management. I wouldn't say it is anyway. Uh, but I would say it absolutely does happen to high-quality management teams, at least if you think that you know Buffett and 3G and so on count as a high-quality management team, which I do. Uh, so that's pretty much my thoughts on uh, Teladoc and the kind of immediate reaction. Sorry, Paul, over to you. Um, I still think the, there's problems with the moat here, and I think this story breaking down a little bit on top of the the lack of so those those solid business fundamentals of uh solid sorry the solid qualitative business fundamentals i th i think that's why we've got the problem here but like you said this acquisition idea i think is the best way for teladoc at the moment or at least i think this is the way it's going to go but that's going to leave a lot of shareholders uh, really in trouble, particularly ones who have been uh, holding since the peak, like like you, Steve. I, it's not going to go for that sort of valuation, is it? And what are you going to do? I, and I also think that someone like Johnson & Johnson isn't going to buy it. I think it's probably going to be more like an insurance company that's going to pick up this somewhere. Uh, it it's definitely feels like it's more on, on, on that side of it. Um, but they're probably only going to pick it up for a, a, a few billion more than than what it is right now. So shareholders kind of have that problem. If they're thinking that, if they're thinking that there's an acquisition coming, then there's definitely a ceiling for this stock that is probably over what a lot of people have paid for it previously. So that, that's the risk there from a shareholder's point of view. Um, but it's still like it's still I like the story of the sector itself, the growing sector itself. I always have had my reservations about Teladoc and it's moat in that sector. I understand that it's got a big doctor uh, database uh, and it's got uh, I've even been trying to get my missus to sign up as a therapist on better help. I, I really do see the benefit of it. Um, but when you go to a GP surgery, they're not using Teladoc. They're using Microsoft Teams and they're using um, even the Google Cloud stuff, um, Google Meet, they've been using a lot of the time as well uh, with little bolt-ons or um, different type suites for that. 
so I still don't see it, and that's only because it's from an anecdotal point of view. That and that's my that's my devil's advocate version of it because I do think this company is going to grow. It's got a future, but I think it's got a future in an acquisition right now. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, I think the the issue is is that as Teladoc gets cheaper and cheaper, they're just the likelihood of somebody just saying, "Ha, we'll take that out." I mean, like people like United Health who provide this as a service anyway, and other likelihoods to send you through Teladoc, um, they 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 could look at Teladoc now at a few billion and think, "Well, that's probably half a year's free cash flow for somebody like United you, Health." Um, you, they could you're just going to destroy the competition, aren't you? you they're going to just kill a, comp a massive competitor, basically. The Google way. Well, even with United Health, it's just got massive it's got massive synergies, hasn't it? United Health could pick Teladoc yeah. up. It's so small now that it's likely to uh, not attract any kind of antitrust. And all all that happens there is that United Health basically bolt on uh, a service to their their hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions probably of uh, of customers. So yeah, it's a real yeah. it's a real worry now. I, the other worry that you would have is, in a short term point of view is that. Uh, at this kind of price, you could quite easily see an activist investor getting involved in this and saying, look, Gorovich, you can't say stuff like that. You know, you're out, <laughs> get somebody else in uh, and, you know, but that might be that might be what Teladoc needs. Uh, it's very difficult to say. I mean, let, let's cut the fluff here. Gorovich has done almost exactly what he said he would do. He said he would grow the company in the low to mid twenties. That's exactly what the company's done. Even if you look at their their guidance for the year, they're growing in the in the twenties, around the twenties. It's exactly what he said he would do. Obviously, he can't control the macro environment, um, and you would assume in America um, when when you know the macro environment gets tough for people and people's mortgages go up. Americans just won't go to the doctor. It's not like how it is here. <laughs> it's very different over there. I was reading a story the other day about a woman who uh, gave birth to a, uh, her baby prematurely and because her insurance wouldn't cover it, it ended up costing her $1.2 million. Um, so this is, this is, this is the reality of, uh, you know, of America. Insane. This is the reality of, um, you know, the sort of environment that Teladoc is, is operating in. So I'm erring on the side of wanting change. I don't find myself on the sort of, selling fence at the moment i still don't see anything in this report that's inherently bad I, I have a theory that this is getting caught up in the general disdain for kathy wood a little bit um and i feel like there's a there's an air of somebody really wanting to flush her out for some reason um but you know teledoc's not doing itself any favors <coughs> either um so yeah i think it's an interesting stock though so i think people buying in today are getting a company at essentially two times sales, growing at 20, uh, 20 percent a year on the verge of being free cash flow positive could be free cash flow positive. My only sort of worry is that really, really deep down in the earnings call, um, they asked Gorovich how he plans to supercharge the growth again. I'll get Teladoc growing, you know, so it can raise its guidance again. And he started talking about acquiring things. And uh, he's a, he, that worries me yeah, right. incessantly. Um, but yeah, AT&T will see, see uh, <laughs> the Teladoc world of the uh, remote work, working world. Oh, God, it's going to be 
Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Uh, if you if you are invested in Teladoc or if you are interested in Teladoc, uh, leave some uh, leave a comment um, or just put loads of Kathy Wood hate on. It's it's, it's up to you, guys, really. Um, but let us know what how you feel about um, Teladoc and what you think their next move is. Should we sell it? Should we buy more of it? What are you doing? Um, next, we're going to move on to Amazon because that has had a fourteen percent drop. 14, 1, 4% drop on its earnings report, which at first look didn't look that bad. I'm looking today right now because I am literally staring at my portfolio right now, just going up. It's just massively rising. But I've got stocks like Google, which are now up 4% today. I've got Lenar, which is up another 5.5%, all from this news on the interest rates. But Amazon has only gone up 1% today. Uh, so it still isn't catching the mood of the market uh, very much. So I'm going to get rid of that now so I stop it. But that was just a little observation I just wanted to make right now is that Amazon isn't moving up with the market in the same way that the other big tech stocks are moving up with the market. Amazon earnings came in at $7.38 per share versus $8.36 uh, expected and uh, $116.4 billion, uh, billion in revenue versus $116.3 expected. So it did beat on its revenue, uh, but its earnings per share took a serious hit. Um, which is uncharacteristic of uh, Amazon. Amazon Web Services up uh, 18.44 billion versus 18.27 expected. And the big story here was advertising, which is still massive, but it missed uh, $7.88 uh, per share versus, uh, sorry, 7.88 billion versus 8.17 billion expected. So the, the, the story here was that retail isn't going as well, particularly first uh, first party sales. Uh, but the big story for growth is still AWS growing at 30, uh, 37% uh, year on year, but that's lower than what Azure and, and Google Cloud are growing at. The competitors both growing in the mid to late 40s. Um, there was a it's a mixed bag for uh, Amazon here. It's um, I don't think it's as bad as what people have made it out to be with this fourteen percent drop. I still think there's the story here. Is this is this the end of Amazon, like everyone's saying, or is this just tough comps? So I don't think this is the end of Amazon particularly. I had a look at this kind of earnings report and I was also struck by a large negative number in the EPS column. Had a quick look at that. Uh, did about the same time actually as Steve's uh, observations about Teladoc were happening. I can't remember what day they reported on. They might have been something like the same day. But they've also taken a whack in the uh, failed investment category uh, or at least temporarily not worked as well as it ought to have investment category i guess we can call it that in the case of amazon the big issue is their rivian shares uh, turns out that investment is now worth less than it was before so they've had another non-cash uh, charge come out of their business which kind of helps explain why a company that size is reporting negative eps uh, apart from that i tried to work out what you would get to as an eps number if you kind of add back the impairment charge so don't, don't factor that in in quite the same way and you get to about 7.6 uh, dollars per share uh, sorry um 
Yeah, $7.4 per share, sorry, is what I've got if you add that in. So it's still down uh, from where it was last year, and it's still short of uh, estimates as well. So there's something else kind of going on there, but it's a much less striking number when you kind of put it in those terms. I suppose what I'm struck by here with Amazon is I think of this as a a Lennar-type company of a sort. So if you think about the three companies I mentioned before, uh, I think of this as a company that where de- demand is going to wax and wane, uh, retail is going to go the way consumer spending goes, when inflation's high, uh, retail will slow down a bit, when it's low and GDP is growing better, it will speed up a bit. Um, I tend to think this is a cyclical company doing cyclical things, um, and that means that I'm inclined towards buying the shares here rather than thinking there's something deeper and more problematic going on. There's definitely elements of the kind of uh, Teladoc um, slash uh, Palantir type story where if growth isn't happening at the rate it's supposed to be happening, uh, the shares come down because, you know, you said you were going to produce all this money for us in quarters 100 or something like that onwards. If it looks like that's not going to show up, well, then we're going to devalue things. But... Uh, My general sense here is this is a cyclical company doing cyclical things like a cyclical stock. Um, Steve? Yeah, so uh, same thing. Um, The only thing that I would sort of advise people look at when they're looking through these earnings is just to uh, also note that Amazon has overhired in the quarter and it has also um, uh, done quite a lot of work on its fulfillment centers. So they're the other issues. So uh, Amazon can turn on and... uh, Literally, Amazon could make you a lot of money very quickly if it wanted to. The mm-hmm. issue is, is that Amazon doesn't want to. The reason it's a trillion-dollar company is because of the potential of what its earnings are, not what its actual earnings are. So just to go back to AWS, it did $18.44 billion in the quarter. It's 16% of Amazon's revenue at the moment. That's a quarter, remember? So you, you've got to times that number by four to get to the full year. So Amazon threw off about six point five two billion of that in operating income. Uh, that's uh, that's about fifty seven percent higher than the the street account consensus. Um, so its operating margin widened from thirty five point three percent to twenty nine point eight percent. That's really really impressive. You look at um, the projections. I was looking at all the analyst projections by now. Amazon should have. 40 billion in um, annual revenue. If you're taking back the estimates that were made back in uh, in 2015, Amazon should be at 40 billion annual revenue. It said 89, uh, sorry, it's at 67 billion of annual revenue at the moment, and it's got 88.9 billion of backlog, which is up 68% year on year. Amazon Web Services is a monster. It's worth buying Amazon today for AWS alone. And you can have the retail side, which, frankly, I couldn't give a shit about, for free. That's how good AWS is. Yeah, definitely. It's um, And based on a two-year growth, uh, AWS is far outstretching. Uh, it's, it, it's A lot of people have said it's decelerated its growth a little bit but um it, if you look at it on a two-year basis it's absolutely going mental the only problem with this uh perceived de- deceleration in growth in aws is that we have come out of the pandemic stage now we've come into this world where we're all shopping again and we're all out there shouldn't people be creating new businesses new uh, needing new websites, needing new web services to 
restart their new businesses uh, on on the interwebs shouldn't it be bigger than that now because now everyone's not so scared of covid and things well so cloud uh, infrastructure is growing at about 26 percent at the moment uh year on year so it's expected to grow about 18.8 percent over the next 10 years so for amazon to be growing at 37 percent they're grabbing a lot of that market. Uh, they're grabbing market faster than it's growing. Remembering that they're not grabbing market from each other, they're pretty much grabbing market from on-prem sort of software uh, and and other and other types of um, of hosting. So mm. AWS is a monster, and it's a monster that's growing big numbers still pretty fast. Um, I would wouldn't think there's too many companies with the kind of 60 odd billion run rate that are growing at 37 percent. i can't think of any off the top of my head steve i don't know no, whether you not. have any that are that kind of size that are growing at that kind of size so I, I think aws i mean if aws was the split off amazon i think straight off the bat it's a trillion dollar company without um mm. without any kind of doubt so amazon is about a trillion and a bit now is it steve i would imagine after the fall so um I think you've pretty much getting retail for free, which is fine because the retail side of it is is a low margin, sort of crappy business that uh, you know. <laughs> it's not a crappy business, <laughs> research, it's, but it's is is low margin and uh, it's it's high uh, high cost at the moment, uh, especially with the the new factories that it's been it's been buying. Like you say, it's over overpaid for um, staff that it probably didn't need in the end, and obviously there's a there's a lot of union pressure going on the unions are coming for um the these big companies at the moment uh that's what happens in a high interest rate in, environment where people can't um pay for goods and services as easily as before uh, comp uh employees start to want more money they don't want stop-based comp anymore they want they want cash in their pockets and uh, when they don't get that straight away, they start to vote for unionization. And that's probably only going to get stronger as things uh, progress down this horrible recession-esque road that we seem to be going down right now. Um, yeah, I, I, devil's advocate. I mean, I, I can't really say anything bad here because I've, I've got to admit this is this has put Amazon right on my list. This 14% drop has put Amazon right on my list uh, as one of those stocks that I really want to buy. I I am one of the people who hopes it goes profitable soon. I think that it's got everything in place that it needs to now, and I think it should start to accept its age, in the words of Aswath Modaran, and start to act like a mature growth company now and uh, that's that's a very important thing um uh for me on this one which is why it has now become uh so heavy on my list as one to possibly buy uh because this is still growth this is still perfect growth uh it's just not that exciting high growth anymore um which makes it very appealing uh and fits much more into my category now uh if it starts to turn on the tap uh right so in the next one we're going to look at uh meta one stock that is probably trying too hard to uh to find new areas in uh in a lot of people's opinion 
maybe Amazon. See, that was a thing I was going to say about Amazon. Uh, keep trying, keeping on trying to get into new areas and spawning new areas. The next step that it's got is a is a metaverse play, basically, and you don't want Amazon to go down that line. You want it to accept that it's a that it's making a lot of money. Meta, however, wants to be the future of whatever's in front of your face and. Uh, I think Facebook's doing better than it was, right? But uh, a couple of the other things aren't doing so great. But I guess Steve W's our man for Meta because he knows everything about it. Uh, maybe everything, but I think making sense of this set of <laughs> Meta earnings just involves a very, very quick back uh, look at last time's Meta earnings. So just bear with me uh, if we fill in the background just for a couple of moments here. So last time... Uh, total revenues were up 20%. Operating income was basically flat. APS was down a little bit. Uh, in the family of apps, so the, the collection of apps as a whole, ARPU was up. Monthly active users was up. Daily active users was also up. Uh, Facebook blue app itself, um, ARPU was up in every geography. Monthly active users were up. Daily active users were down a little bit. And the stock sold off 20% almost immediately and went straight in the bin. Um, okay, so... This time round, uh, what happened here? So total revenue was up a little bit and it was slightly under um, expectations from the street. Uh, operating income was down by 25%. Earnings per share were down by 18%. ARPU in the family of apps was down. Monthly active users were up and daily active users were up. Facebook ARPU was down again. Uh, monthly active users up, daily active users up. And the stock is up 18% immediately after um, earnings. So make of that what you will. I think, and I've been trying hard to work out exactly what the, to make of this, because it felt to me like that previous earnings report wasn't that bad uh, and the market went mad on it. Uh, and it feels to me like this more recent one wasn't that good uh, and the market is going stir crazy in the opposite direction from what I can see of it. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, here's my idea uh, for you. It's not often I spend that much time thinking about kind of market action, but I feel like in this case, it's um, sufficiently confusing that I've tried to stick some thought into it, basically. When I was listening to Motley Fool talking about this, Tim Byers was saying after the previous one, that's it for Facebook, uh, sorry, Meta as a, a bunch of stuff. It's done now for growth mode. It's now being treated like a value stock that's not going to grow, which is sort of odd because its revenues were going up, uh, but by like 20%, which sounds a lot like growth. Uh, but nonetheless, he was saying that's the end of that. So people are now starting to think of this as, to you back, back to my earlier analogy, this is why I was doing all this stuff. They're starting to think this is Kellogg's. Uh, we're going to make this money and maybe slightly more quarter on quarter forever. And that's kind of where we're going to be at. So let's price ourselves according to that. We're going to price ourselves to expect 367 a quarter or something uh, going up a little bit each time or something like that. Uh, and maybe some downs with recessions and so on and so forth. But roughly that kind of level. Uh, the main reason being the kind of daily active users on Facebook was off a little bit. Uh, they've managed to correct that issue uh, at Meta Platforms. The kind of... Uh, the kind of non-financial stuff like daily active users monthly active users they're still pushing higher and now all of a sudden it looks to me like people are thinking of this as maybe not palantir because this is profitable but a palantir style of stock again and they're starting to think oh actually uh maybe there's some much much bigger numbers coming uh in i don't know 10 15 20 years time let's start pricing it like a thing where we don't mind taking low numbers for a little while because there's massive numbers coming down the line again 
Uh, market cap's currently about 590 billion. Um, so the stock is in growth mode, apparently. I bought it before because I thought it was in value mode, or I thought it was kind of priced to be in uh, value mode of mostly flat and pushing slightly higher. I connect to your point, Paul, on the, uh, the kind of life cycle of businesses that Demodoran talks about. I, I wish uh, that were the case uh, for meta platforms. I wish I could see this metaverse thing as just an interesting, like, driverless car punt thingy at Google. Um, I think it's probably not. I think it's the thing they have to do to try and stay alive here, because if the metaverse or anything like it happens without them, uh, their platforms are all toast. So I think this isn't a kind of separate thing where you think, well, maybe they can spin that out or something along those lines. I sort of think this is the thing they really have to have as the new part of their business. And this is their bid to stay relevant for the next kind of leg uh, for the whole damn thing. It's natural to look at these and think, oh, that family of apps thing looks great. That looks like a kind of AWS type thingy. Uh, I, I very much like that. And if we could stop lobbing money down this metaverse drain, that would be ideal. Uh, OK, we've got a weird name for a company that's not going to lob money into the metaverse, but we'll, we'll live with that thought. Just give me the family of apps thing that basically prints money. I don't think if the metaverse stuff work, uh, fails to work, sorry, I don't think there is much for a family of apps here. Uh, and that's been my way of thinking about it for a little while. So I'm, I'm kind of less optimistic than quite a few of my fellow uh, meta shareholders here. Uh, I'm not buying it at these prices. I was buying it at the previous ones after that historic kind of drop. I thought that was a big overreaction to what was still a reasonably well-performing company. ARPU seems to be worse this month, but everyone likes it better. That sounds like growth mode to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think of the Oculus? What do you, do you, have you tried it? Do you like the idea of it? I haven't tried it. I don't like the idea of it. If it was a thing that we could do without, <laughs> I would love us to try and do without it. Um, I feel like it's not a thing that we can do without, but um, like I say, at a previous price, I thought I was priced to have a go with this. I really struggle with the VR stuff. Uh, I, I kind of struggle to see a future like that. I, I don't want to sound all Charlie Munger here, right, who said at the, the Daily Journal thing, he doesn't think it's good for society when someone spends 40 hours a week pretending to be an assassin. It might have a point, <laughs> but I kind of don't like the idea that I'm going to spend large amounts of my life with a, a kind of headset on my head uh, doing oh, God knows what in the metaverse product is amazing uh, like the the actual experience of the oculus and the, the games that they've got on there is incredible my brother's got one and i literally only go around his house just to play on that thing but i won't buy one myself because i know i'll just end up in the metaverse forever and i won't get out but i just know i won't he barely turns up for podcasts as it is don't <laughs> So, so just just oh, as a side note, has anybody seen how thick Charlie Munger's glasses are? For somebody to complain about somebody having oh. like a VR kit strapped to his face, like Charlie Munger's <laughs> glasses are like six inches thick. It's the same as a VR set. Um, yeah, but not one eye. Yeah. <laughs> in the absence, and that eye's massive the through them, them bottlenecks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the in the absence of a quiz, I will give you a, a, a short game. Who sold more last year? Was it the Oculus or was it the Microsoft Egg Box? The Microsoft what Egg Box? I've never heard That's of that. That's what it's called today. Oh. It's the Xbox. Oh, oh, egg bo oh, oh the right, Xbox. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I was also wondering whether there was some sort of weirdly shaped Microsoft VR headset thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I would go with it's probably the Oculus. Well, just because you've asked, it's going to be correct. Oculus, yeah, but did. I'm going to say Xbox. Mm. I'm going to say Xbox. Uh, 
the Oculus uh, outsold the Xbox last year in 2021. Um, the other sort of like interesting stat that I pulled out of it, Steve, and, and feel free to comment on this if you can. Um, Facebook seems far more interested in buying back stock at $360 and $335 than it seems to be at 250 And I can't really seem to get my head around that. So they, they were buying back at 360 They spent uh, about $13.5 billion. Uh, $335. They spent twenty point one billion, and at two fifty, they spent only nine. It seems strange that mm. they they were so happy to try and bump that share price up, and and now that it's fallen down, and they're actually getting value for money. Uh, they're less interested in buying it. But then I looked at their R and D spend, and I can see where that money is going. Is the capex uh, coming? If you look yeah. at well, if you look at 2014, they were spending about $2.5 on R&D, and you look at 2021, they're spending $24.6 billion yeah. in uh, R&D. It's literally a tenfold increase. So if you're wondering where your buyback's going, it's going in that weird thing that Zuck Zuckerberg keeps advertising that just looks incredibly cringy. What, the Metaverse or Oculus? The Zuckerverse. The mm. Zuckerverse, yeah. It's, um... No, uh, well, like I said, I, I I really love the Oculus. Uh, it's it, it's a computer system right in on your eyes, and it's so immersive. So blah blah blah, that's fine. Um, advertising though, uh, we've got to talk because we talked about Amazon earlier, and we missed the, out on the big advertising thing. Ab uh, Amazon is catching up with Google and Facebook in advertising. To me, Facebook only has that. Um, as its sort of flywheel driver for the, the rest of it. Whereas Google has a lot of other things that are still profitable. We can talk about YouTube. We can talk about um, some of the other ventures that they have. But Amazon's uh, Amazon's advertising business is as big as YouTube. Uh, it's worth it's worth exactly the same amount. It's now third um, in in that. Uh, in that list and it's taking a bit of those advertising dollars away from Facebook and of course from Google in a sense um, do we think that it's losing a bit of footing and with the growth I, I, I don't have the numbers because this is just something that I've, I've remembered right now um, with the growth of Amazon in its advertising services doing so well can it knock Facebook off that second pedestal that second place uh, for advertising soon? Maybe. I mean, Facebook is going to have to uh, contest with the kind of new Apple kind of restrictions on privacy, tracking, and so on and so forth. And that's going to be a bad thing for them because it's going to limit the quality of their uh, product they can offer to advertisers, straightforwardly enough. And that might have something to do with why ARPU's down. So what they're going to be, I guess, is a large kind of mass of individuals that you can market things to rather than something with substantially more kind of um, uh, data to use in, in targeting your marketing better. And I guess there'll still be a market for uh, advertising to a massive group of people, uh, even without the kind of data in there. Not sure why there kind of suddenly wouldn't be an attraction to that. But it does look to me a bit like um, there's, I guess there's more coming from other things. I'm not sure quite where Facebook lands in terms of um, advertising. So it's, that makes it kind of hard to gauge exactly um, mm. whether Amazon catches them up for me. Yeah, um, I, I've noticed... Uh, I've had a look a, at a Facebook. bit of a degrade in the quality of the adverts 
on Facebook recently. I've noticed that it used to be quite high quality companies paying for those adverts, but now it's very similar to Twitter where it's just these dog shit type sponsored posts that are, that are coming out. So yeah, it's just something that I, I mentioned. Sorry, Steve. I think I interrupted you there. I mean, that's definitely a sign they're tailoring their advertising to you, Paul. They've given up trying to sell you high-quality gear and they're thinking you might be in the market for some low-rent stuff. They're trying to sell me wedding photography, for God's sake. Just to um, just to give you some stats on Facebook advertising, just because, you know, I think a lot of people sort of, like, look over um, sort of just how big Facebook has really got. So Facebook ads uh, have the potential to reach about 34.1% of uh, the global population. Um, the Facebook ads reach 64% of all Americans over the age of 13. Actually, they reach 88% of all Mexicans, 60% of all people from the UK, 56 France, 53 Italy. The growth area for them is still Asia-Pacific, though. Um, they only get to about 30% of Indians. You would assume that's got something to do with internet connection. Um, that's an interesting way that Facebook can then then move into, you know, move into India. Sort of... I was looking at the last digital report, 50% of consumers um, want to discover new products through Facebook stories and Instagrams, whatever their short thing's called, I don't use Instagram. So there is some real power still left in, in, in Instagram and Facebook, but it's about them realizing it. So the problem at the moment is that Facebook meta is, is kind of spinning plates and uh, it's not paid an awful lot of attention to its actual business and he's Zuck's got his head in the clouds a bit. I'd love to see Zuck portion off that side of the business and go and run it if he wants, but just install somebody who who is interested in maintaining what they already have. So if I if I read into what I've read about uh, their uh, acquisitions of Instagram and things like that, uh, Zuckerberg is very much a control freak, and that would never happen. So he will. He will either make the ship right or he will take the ship down and there won't be anything in the middle. Yeah, what you're asking for there is like um, like Jassy was in charge of AWS, the head of AWS, like Ruth is and is head of YouTube or CEO, CEO of YouTube, uh, her actual title is. You're looking for someone, CEO of Instagram, CEO of Facebook and um yeah zuck can just go have his wankathon in the in the virtual metaverse uh it's i i can see it i i i think that's a great strategy i think that's a great way of doing it but like you say uh i'm starting to now you've mentioned it like that i've heard a lot of things about uh mark zuckerberg being a bit of a megalomaniac being a bit of a control freak and maybe that sort of thing is coming true and I didn't believe it at first. I really didn't, but maybe it is. Maybe it is a bit weird. Right. We'll get on to the last one. Uh, saving the best for last. It's Airbnb, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, from just what I've heard, from Steve talking about this pre-show, uh, it's doing incredibly. Yeah, so th <laughs> this is the fourth. Um, fourth earnings smash in a row for Airbnb. Um, revenue 1.51 billion on the quarter versus 1.45 expected. <clears throat> Adjusted EBITDA 229 million. They're expected 75.5 million. Guidance they said uh, 
two dollars and three on their adjusted EBITDA to two dollars and thirteen, and they're estimating about one point nine seven billion in revenue. Um, in this report, they generated one point two billion in free cash flow. Um, if they can keep that up and this is Wednesday when we're pricing this. They're trading at between 20 and 22 uh, forward free cash flow. Um, new record bookings over 100 million this quarter. Um, they reckon the bookings total is about 17.2 billion, which in value is a 67% year on year increase. Um, negative 14% to positive 13% swing in EBITDA margins over the last four quarters. So a business that is clearly turning on the, uh, on the profit taps. So I had a good look through the call. Here's some interesting stuff that I picked out. So, um, Airbnb were asked, uh, or Brian Chesky was was asked about um, the policy recently where he said that all of his employees, they can work from anywhere now. It's completely set up that they don't have to come to the office. They don't even have to be at home. They can work from wherever they want. And he said this, just to give you a small anecdote, last week uh, on Thursday, we announced that Airbnb employees can live and work anywhere in the world. The response internally was great. But what's even more impressive was the response externally. Our career page on Airbnb.com was visited 800,000 times after that announcement. And so I think that just speaks to the durability of this use case. And I think that's it's going to go, it's going great. So I thought that was a Incredible. really interesting little sort of um little interesting yeah. thing so That's one of the incredible. things i was noticed is that their advertising spend advertising spend at airbnb is incredibly low and uh, they're asked about um, their advertising and how they regard innovation as the core driver of growth and not advertising and they came out with a stat that 90 percent of their traffic is unpaid so i'll just read you this quote here so now with regards to advertising i think it's just important that i share a little bit of a recap of how we think about marketing and dave he was another person on the call feel free to talk more detail uh, obviously, a different approach to marketing and advertising than our peers. We take a full funnel approach to marketing that combines PR, brand marketing, and performance marketing. And we're really not focused on buying customers. We're focused primarily in investing in our brand and educating the world about what makes Airbnb unique. So we think of marketing primarily as, primarily as education. And I think this explains why 90% of our traffic or more is direct or unpaid. Airbnb is a noun or a verb used all over the world. And it really was not our advertising that did this, but PR and word of mouth that's built our brand. Just to give you an example, since the pandemic started, there's been more than 1 million articles written about Airbnb. 55% of those articles have used the word travel in it, also have Airbnb. So it's pretty uh, so advertising is really a form of supplemental education for us. It's not the core driver of growth. We think the core driver of growth at Airbnb is innovation. It's about building a product that people actually love. And the role of marketing isn't for us to buy customers. The role of marketing is for us to educate people about our new features and our new offerings. I thought that was a really interesting part. I can't think of yeah. many companies that are growing at the sort of speed that Airbnb are that are doing it through word of mouth and it's continuing to grow. Um, Needs to buy so Twitter, I think that's a really interesting sort of tidbit about. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> the beauty of the "I'm flexible" feature. So, if you haven't come across this on Airbnb, you can just tick a button and it will pull up a random a random place for you to go and visit. And they were asked about this on the call to uh, really sort of like sort of accentuate why they even bothered to build this feature. Um, so, yeah, they said. Uh, 
I mean, one is that we just have more supply than we've ever had in our history. And as Brian mentions in the call, the fact we grow more supply in the areas that have the greatest demand, like a non-urban active listings grew 21% in North America and 15% globally, it's kind of like we have self-healing. Where we have the demand is where we end up having supply. And the redistribution is also incredibly important because we have listings in all types of markets. We're not globally constrained and at any given night, which is different than if you had a supply of only one type in one market. And then when demand spikes in that particular more narrow market, things like vacation rentals, you don't have anywhere else to distribute your demand. But because we're all around the world in every community, we end up with the benefit of being able to redistribute the demand to other places. And it's been incredibly strong for us. So that really explains mm. you why they built this I'm flexible feature, because at the end of the day, it isn't that expensive to get to almost anywhere in the world at the moment. Um, so go on. the consumer wants to be told what, they want to do i i mean i'm you know i'm not mm -hmm. 20 year old in a couple anymore so i'm not in that boat uh i know where i want to go on holiday if we're going to go on holiday but i can remember from when i when i was all those many many years ago when i was in that boat uh, and i and i probably would be using airbnb now i would often say to my other half and go well where are we going to go where do you want to go and we'd always come up with just the same old mm. places and i think if i was in that boat again i would click that i'm flexible button i can see me wanting to do that it's the it's mm. the world at the moment if you go on instagram you see um all you see is pictures of people walking in hills and mountains and exotic places and they're probably only there for five minutes and they get 20 hours worth of content and they make you think that you're not doing enough and um that's uh, uh, but that is that's a driver that's a massive massive driver and i've noticed actually on instagram as well in the reels because i'm not on tiktok um but in the reels i've noticed that so uh, people are advertising their places to stay as these holiday locations and like you say that free advertising is is absolutely exceptional i, I think they're on to such a winner aren't they yeah, so, I mean, there are other areas that they're going to win in as well, by the looks of it, because if you add in that free cash flow, they've got about $9 billion in cash at the moment, and that is piling up. The problem there is that I don't really see Airbnb as something that's going to go out and buy anything. They look like they want to build everything. So, um, I mean, are we talking about Airbnb being far away from wanting to throw off some cash? I'm not so certain about that. It's going to be an interesting watch, so... I was looking for areas that they still want to grow into, and uh, Brian Chesky brought up experiences. So he said that, with that being said, we are absolutely looking at new opportunities and new services. Nothing we paused from the pandemic that is out of or is off the table is going to resume. Nothing we paused from the pandemic is off the table to resume, sorry. And Airbnb experiences, for example, is a big area of investment in the coming years. And so we're starting to ramp up that product this year. I think more or even more next year, you're going to see some major new offerings around Airbnb experiences and we're going to see significant demand. So it looks like they really see that the, 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 the business of the letting side of it, the holidaying side of it, is just gonna is just gonna go and run off now, and they're looking to build the next flywheel to run alongside it. Wage inflation this year is a real real problem, 
Uh, Airbnb actually did 1.5 billion in Q1 with 16% fewer employees than they had in Q1 2020. So this is the beauty of the Airbnb model is that it doesn't actually need an awful lot of staff to do it. It's almost entirely autonomous. Um, so I just pull a quick quote from Dave Stevenson. He's the head of global employee experience. I think he's a CFO as well. Um, in, te in terms of wage inflation, we did 1.5 billion revenue in Q1 with just 6,200 people. We don't need, as I said, we actually have 16% fewer people than we did in Q1 of 2020. We don't need to add incremental people to have this business grow dramatically. We're significantly larger today as a business with significantly fewer people. So wage inflation is not a driver of costs. We are investing in our employees in order to enable them to live anywhere, move anywhere they want. If they want, if they move someplace else, we're not going to alter their pay for being in a different part of the country. And we're going to support them to work 90 days in other countries around the world. So we think that kind of investment will benefit us by having lower attrition and being able to attract the best talent in the world. So we think that's going to be a great investment for the future to have the best talent to unlock all the innovation that Brian has talked about on the call today. So again, I think that's an incredible bit, but we'll just finish on some really, really good news. Um, Airbnb, uh, in the midst of the, the, the war in Ukraine, um, allowed people to book stays with um, uh, people who were, are offering lets in Ukraine and they waived all fees in order to do it. You didn't physically have to go and stay. It was a way of people getting direct money into Ukrainian hands uh, in, in the areas that need it the most. So Brian reported on that and he said 170,000 people booked over 600,000 nights in Ukraine, providing its hosts with $20 million in direct financial relief. So incredible. And congratulations yeah, to anybody who did really that. Good. I thought it was uh, a really nice way to finish. So yeah, Airbnb is absolutely smashing it. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's... I think it's getting very attractive yeah i need to see the valuation i think the valuation is a little bit high but brilliant absolutely brilliant set the bar well the price on airbnb i think is about where it ipo'd if i'm right in where i was looking earlier i think it's kind of had a, a kind of big uh loop on it and i think it's come back to somewhere near where it started uh i think steve you managed to pick up shares slightly below the um ipo price at the time so that was you know doing better there but my sense is that it's not that far from where it was before my only remem uh, memory of trying to value this before was thinking somewhere around 80 at the ipo but it's not at the ipo anymore it might well be worth another look for me it feels very on brand for airbnb letting people use their own houses as offices which is kind of effectively what they're saying right you don't have to come in and work um i guess i'll be interested in how well that works going forward i feel like there's still a good bit of uncertainty for me over this kind of thing maybe you end up just self-selecting the people who want to work from home, right? And as Steve's pointing out, plenty of people are willing to sign up for it. I do wonder, I don't know, a few people have been saying uh, that they kind of like being back in and around other people and so on. Uh, and if Airbnb, the main advantage, I guess, to having people work from home is that you don't have to maintain office space or pay for it or, or whatever. Um, that only works if everyone's going to be kind of completely decentralized. Uh, I, I can definitely see that working. Um, I think it's one of the things that I'm going to keep an eye on as it develops, uh, though. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's de they've definitely set the bar for it, though. If, um, if they end up attracting the majority of the talent uh, towards this rather than it going to the other big tech companies, then um, there's, they're certainly going to have an advantage there and it, it's going to cause... Uh, if they do attract that great talent, it's going to cause 
the other companies to um, bring that in as well. So they've definitely set the bar for pay and conditions in big tech at the moment um, there, or at least they're they're trying to move the needle a bit. bit. I'm not a fan of experiences. I don't like the idea of it. Um, I think that Google's got that wrapped up the, the majority of it. And depending on what t- sort of experiences they're talking about, red letter day companies uh, is where I was thinking with that one. Those companies never do well. They're almost always going bust uh, and they, they always seem to fail. It would take a very different sideways look at um, these experience type uh plays to uh for that to develop so i would be wary of experiences but i do like the idea of going a similar way to what the hotels have gone and by the way i tried to book on airbnb the other day and had quite a terrible experience and ended up just booking an airbnb on booking.com which was uh, a strange experience because I couldn't book it directly through Airbnb. I just booked it on booking.com for two quid cheaper, by the way, because it didn't have the cleaning fee. Um, so that was one of my experiences. I had Airbnb the other day. Uh, uh, but what I found was booking.com and things do try and push on you car hire and maybe uh some other things in the area and i can see that's what airbnb might be able to do what may, what might be really good is to allow companies or sorry not companies um uh letters or people you who sell on airbnb suppliers on airbnb to partner up with local services themselves and offer a community-esque vibe on the airbnb platform so it's let's say you book a um, mum and pops farm you book a room on there maybe they've got a llama petting zoo beside it and they can kind of they can say oh if you like this this is that and that would be a that'd be a great way of bringing in that experiences kind of thing but actually offering the experiences in the area i'm i'm not convinced on just yet and that seems to be their only play like you say i don't think this is a spawner but I also think it's a little bit early for them to give back to shareholders, like you said. Well, I was just going to say, I think the sort of vision, the end vision for Airbnb is essentially that you you book your um, you book your hotel or your stay through Airbnb, but you end up booking the transfer to the airport, the flight, the trip over, all your experiences while you're there, your transport from the airport to the Airbnb, and you know all your experiences are booked as well. I I think that's got to be the end goal for for Airbnb. Um, but uh, again, I I I was half joking when I say it's ready to throw off some money. It definitely could, <laughs> but I would be very surprised if it actually yeah. did. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, guys, for listening to the Playing Footsie podcast this week. Uh, we've been Steve, Stephen, Briscoe. Uh, we shall see you next week.